Good day, everyone. My name is Pietrus Potgitter, and I'm here with Bronwyn Howell. We are with the Institute for Technology and Network Economics, and this is the first edition of our podcast called Call and Chain. We focus on the telecoms industry, new technologies like blockchain, and we're both researchers working in the area with varied interests. So today we're discussing the coronavirus lockdown um, very topical issue. Um, I'm locked down in my house in Pretoria and Bronwyn is locked down on her property on the North Island of New Zealand. Uh, we're discussing the effect of the lockdown on people doing work, schooling, etc. from home. What it's doing to leisure time, uh, we consider un- underemployed peoples and the pressure on broadband networks. Uh, Bronwyn, thank you for joining me. Um, just Good. So what is the evidence of increased usage, do you think? Well, it seems to be almost universally around the world. There's been about a 30% increase in the amount of data traffic being put across the telco networks in total. So, for example, if if we'd been downloading or using about 100 gig of data previously, we're now looking at, uh, at downloads of around 125, 130% over most networks. So it's been a significant increase in the amount of traffic. And that seems to be pretty robust in different countries. Those numbers have played out from the United States, South Africa, New Zealand, and in the European Union. Now, all, all of the, the network operators are seeing surges in, in network usage of those sorts of volumes. So I can certainly confer that, uh, uh, confirm that that's the case in South Africa, or that's at least what's op, uh, reported by the network operators. Um, I think there's also a shift to uh, other kinds of networks. So people are working from home. Maybe they're using a mobile connection like I am doing now. And also with regard to the shifting time. So the Economist has placed a graph on its website showing uh, which areas in London and New York have dramatically increased and decreased uh, network traffic. And uh, it's absolutely stunning to see the drop taking place in Manhattan, especially, of course, lower Manhattan. So you can just imagine those uh, empty office buildings with uh, the very, very dark uh, fiber or uh, empty information superhighways. Um, what are your thoughts, Bronwyn, on which apps are causing this increase in traffic? What do we know about that? Well, I think what we've seen is we've had a, there's been business traffic which has moved its location. So if people have been working, say, in Manhattan originally, but now they're working from somewhere out in, uh, up the Hudson or somewhere, then, of course, they'll have moved a lot of that traffic to a different location. So, for example, they might have been using their work applications in the city with very, very fast and high-specified fibre networks, but maybe they've moved some of that work-related um, transactions up into the cloud to perhaps more remote locations that are perhaps more on the periphery of where the network deployment might have been. So you might have moved from a, a fast fibre connection to maybe on a DSL or a wireless connection, and that means that we've moved high volume or very time-critical applications in the business context have shifted location. So that might have put some some stresses on the types of connectivity that are available in residential areas as opposed to the city. 
But of course, the other thing we have is that not everyone is actually working. A lot of people now are unable to actually carry out their routine activities. For example, my hairdresser would love to be um, working in her, her hair salon, but unfortunately she can't. She's stuck at home with only her daughters to do their hair. So of course, she's spending a lot more time on from home on applications that she would never have used at, uh, at a, in a work environment. And she has her teenage daughters with her as well. So whereas her work-related activity is, is not possible, she's now spending a lot of time on um, games and stream videos, Netflix, YouTube, and, of course, teenagers who have a lot more time on their hands now are also using a lot more of these gaming applications. And I think it's interesting that of the, uh, some data that has been seen of the most um, the most highly used applications from the heaviest data users in this period are users who are using things like games and it, the games have have escalated the heaviest users are using games and video streaming so that additional usage that comes simply from people having more time on their hands has led to the change in the sorts of things or increases in those sorts of applications. And that's been borne out by data from the operators that they indicate that's the things that the data has been used for. So I can confirm this uh, from what we've heard from the South African mobile operators that uh, gaming has been one of the uses really driving uh, network uh, traffic at the moment. And uh, I attended a webinar yesterday with Ali Noam of um, CT Institute at Columbia University in New York, and um, several participants uh, confirmed that that was the case. And it's actually quite interesting because we have both looked earlier at um, betting on um, computer gaming, and um, people actually expect that this is going to be a growth industry in the coming months as normal sports disappears from our lives, at least uh, in the live version. Um, I also have the idea that the patterns of traffic might have really changed, uh, at least in some areas. So whereas you would typically have had peak residential usage on a Sunday evening, uh, very one way, so completely asymmetric, people were generally watching Netflix. Um, I suspect that a lot of the traffic patterns are now more symmetric because uh, people are doing video conferencing and this also happens during the day. So what are your thoughts about the times at which uh, these increased usage uh, is seen in the uh, network statistics? So absolutely, that has come out in, in the data from the operators. We're, uh, we're now seeing that the peaks, there are multi-peaks now in the day, peak usage of the different sorts. So nine o'clock in the morning can now be a peak time when people are, are logging on to do their work-related activities, where children are logging on to do their online schooling. And this tends to create a new peak point at that point of the day when people start start getting going. So, um, and it's, it's spread across. Now, there's still high demand in the evenings, but there's more usage at different times of the day. So instead of just having one peak, the operators are now experiencing multiple peaks during the day and a higher average level across the entire day. So this has actually had the effect of 
putting pressures on the networks for the sorts of traffic that they're using. So there's, and that point about the symmetric traffic, work-related activities and posting the work-related things into the cloud has added to the two-wayedness of the networks. These, uh, when in fact the networks had been previously optimised to deal with mostly downstream, some of these networks are now being put under stress because while they might have had a lot of downstream capacity, they may not have as much upstream capacity. So that may lead to things like um, jitter and latency on on things like Skype calls. The video might cut in and out a bit because the networks are not well enough specified for these large volumes going two ways. On the other hand, the network operators have been pretty quick in getting out there and trying to re-specify wherever possible to try and undo those log jams. And in many cases, many places, they've had excess capacity available to them that's allowed them to move rapidly. And they've had a lot of support as well from regulatory agencies. For example, in the US, the FCC worked with all of the leading operators in order to acquire spectrum that was not being used, that had been allocated to an operator called DISH that was lying idle. Well, between them, the FCC negotiated with DISH to make that spectrum available to the other operators so that they could then undo some of those log jams and, and unplug and unclog some of those lines where the traffic was getting slowed down and it was causing problems, particularly for work-related applications notably also for applications that were needed for emergency responders and also the health sector because they're requiring a lot extra lot of extra use of data at the moment too. Yeah, so in South Africa we've also had the minister announce that uh, Spectrum would be released for operators. I'm not sure whether anybody has actually been allocated Spectrum and uh, from this uh, special dispensation and, of course, we have the special problem that Spectrum is not tradable. So uh, it's, in fact, not a problem that can be solved simply by uh, buying Spectrum from somebody or leasing Spectrum from somebody who's not using it. It's a, quite a bit more complicated than that. And, and uh, that's the challenge that the regulatory agencies have now to be part of the solution rather than being part of the enforcement in these times and to encourage sharing wherever it is possible like that. And sometimes this might mean that it pushes the limits of competition law to the margins because we are looking at firms that would normally be competitors being required to collaborate to improve the service to end consumers. But in a crisis, then all hands must go to the pump to get to get the networks working. Absolutely. So Bronwyn, what problems are occurring for end users, do you think? Well, when there's congestion in the network, users will possibly experience some loss of uh, loss of their pictures or their videos or seizing of seizing of the transmissions. These are the things that we call jitter or latency. It's what you might experience with a Skype call where the picture seizes or where the voice of the person talking with you goes through strange mutations, slows down, stops, gets stuttery or, inter- or, or interrupted in those sort of fashions. That's happening simply because there's so much traffic trying to get through at the same time that it just physically can't, or there's a disconnection between the timing of when messages line up to be put back together to be transmitted out in the page loads. So these things can happen when there is too much traffic on the network, 
It can also occur when uh, thinking also about where in the network these things are happening. It can be upstream in the network where lots of traffic is going through the trunk lines, or it could happen right down even within, individ- within an individual's house, where it could be, say, congestion within the Wi-Fi network that's having to send out transmissions to the the smart TV where someone's watching Netflix, the game console where someone's actually playing games, and there are three or four different computers where people are working from home on school and work. So there's many different points where the traffic can become congested or overloaded. And it's important to know when we're facing these sorts of circumstances, which part of the network has got the log jam. Because if we're going to inject a solution, we've got to make sure we're solving the right problem. So I think the congestion within the home network is a real problem because what do you do if you have small people in the house and you need to go on a video conference call while you put them down in front of the television and they start on Netflix just as you dial in on Teams with your colleagues? So um, on the other hand, um, how often do you think the problem is actually that the servers that you're communicating with are overloaded? Because presumably things like Zoom and Teams work to some extent via a central server. And that server, not just the capacity to the server, but actually the ability of the server to process the requests and send out responses uh, gets uh, overtaxed. Yes, and this does become important when we're thinking of transmissions, say, to a workplace. Um, the capacity of the workplace to be able to accept, receive and process these transmissions, particularly if one, if you're working through the firm, your business's virtual private network, if the transmissions into that are constrained because there aren't enough sort of gates for the data to get through, then things can get log jammed there. It can also get log jammed further up the system because there's just too much High, for example, high-definition data being transmitted down. Now, for the most part, people like Netflix, when they're sending data out, have been able to get around this problem by putting the data for the Netflix transmission as close as possible to where people are consuming it. So that gets rid of some of the problems. The ones about the workplace provisioning is that it might not? Um, it's not the telcos that can solve that one. It's it's actually the workplaces where the data is being stored that have to think about their provisioning, how much capacity they've got to be able to receive the messages coming in and send responses out. Yes, now, so I think that. So keep going, Petrus. So I think the capacity of the VPNs were uh, severely taxed on day one of working from home already. And my casual observation is that some corporates have um, cut down on the number of applications for which they require the VPN access. So I think that some more applications have been opened up. Uh, for access from outside. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but I don't really see how it could work otherwise. Um, and Netflix is, of course, a special case because with the Netflix content, you can buffer it. So the user can be downloaded, you know, five minutes into the movie and then not notice when network congestion occurs because it will just catch up later. But this is definitely not the case for uh, online conferencing. And I must say, um, 
it's quite obvious that um, it's not working that well in a certain sense, um, even in countries with uh, quite good networks like the United States. So during a one-hour webinar, you always find somebody fading out or breaking up or simply disappearing. Um, I think part of it is possibly caused by um, ISPs' uh, specific uh, user stratification um, uh, scenarios. So, um, for example, uh, they kick you off the network, force you to request a new IP address to stop people from running servers from home with static IP addresses, and that can easily happen during a meeting, uh, which you wouldn't otherwise really notice. And, of course, this is because there are so many different actors having a part in, in bringing together all of these things. Um, yes, it is complex, and perhaps we should actually, rather than perhaps complaining about the problems when things go wrong, actually think about all of the numbers of things that have to actually go right with all of the different ISPs that are involved, all of the different networks, the different network technologies that everyone's connecting on differently in different parts, all across the globe for these meetings. It's absolutely amazing in most cases that these things can in fact happen. And that's actually by dint of the fact that the network operators themselves have actually thought very hard in their investment strategies to specify networks to be able to allow for these surges in demand and their ability to be responsive and go around and jiggle the settings when these things come up because they're learning the whole time around this and they can go around and jiggle a whole bunch of their settings to ensure that things can flow better across the whole network. Because the internet itself is, is largely based on a sort of like a flow system that has worked on rebalancing itself. So the network operators are, operate, are working the whole time fiddling with the valves and opening and adjusting them and allowing all of these things to happen to try and keep the experience as seamless as possible. But yeah. there's a couple of things that can lead to that. Firstly, in countries like the United States, New Zealand, um, where we've not had an extensive requirement for network sharing, there's much more overbuilding of capacity. And the bigger the overbuild of capacity, the more options the operators have to be able to get together and be able to make these adjustments. For example, what the FCC was able to do with the spectrum was possible because they've been overbuilding by all of the, the, the independent networks. Where there's been mandated sharing of network resources, in, perhaps in the European Union, there hasn't necessarily it's, – it's been designed to have a network that has minimised the cost of deployment and maximised the use of sharing of a single player's core network and what that yes. means is when the system comes under stress, there aren't as many options available. There aren't as many valves to be tweaked. So it puts more pressure on those systems because they're more fragile. They haven't got the same degree of redundancy built in. Now, the U.S. telcos have, have over the past 10 years, have invested about two and a half times per line the amount that the network operators in, in Europe have. On the one hand, this has led to perhaps some arguably higher prices in the US, but the benefit is now is that they've got all of these other options available to them to be able to recalibrate the system. 
in Europe, on the other hand, they haven't had the options and they've tried to respond to that with regulated solutions like requiring Netflix to down-specify its high definition to standard definition to be able to reduce the amount of traffic. So they've had to take a different approach there by constraining the data to help get the things running them up more smoothly simply because they just don't have the investment opportunities. And that's come about because of the legacy of mandated network sharing from the get-go. Yes, certainly. And I think it's good to keep in mind also that um, historically the Internet has been run as a patchwork of networks where there is voluntary interchange of traffic between commercial parties. And this has actually worked quite well. Um, and there's still uh, a huge amount of that going on in the background. And I think uh, it's a tribute to the success and uh, extent of the industry that uh, this crisis has actually not caused much worse problems. The problems have so far been relatively minor, I would say. Yes, and, and what's happened is we've learned so much um, as we've gone through this time when They've now learned so much about where the different patterns are. They've been able to accommodate. It has meant that, for example, firms have had to change their own settings for their own local networks. Um, for example, I know the network engineers have been working rapidly in, in places where reprovisioning the networks available for health authorities because they are now facing unprecedented or unexpected demands on the pattern of traffic that has required adjustments. But it's been possible to get in and do this rapidly where you've got the spare capacity in the first place. And that's about ensuring that the networks have been designed with this resilience in them from the get-go. And the telco systems have been pretty good at ensuring that's been the case. So if we think a little bit about where congestion is occurring and what, what apps are causing it, um, I have two things that I remember quite well. A friend of mine used to work in desktop support, and he, he told me that um, if people called in from corporate networks to complain about the Internet being slow, 80% of the time the problem was caused by Dropbox taking up a huge amount of the bandwidth by local syncing. I remember also many, many years ago, possibly 15 or more, uh, Skype was practically uh, a banned application uh, on many company networks because the Skype application uh, actually does the kind of peer-to-peer -peer routing or used to do that. And uh, that meant that some Skypes installed and running on computers just turned into uh, network nodes sometimes and reduced the network experience for others. Uh, so under the current work-from-home circumstances, um, what apps do we think are causing network congestion and when is this happening, aside from games, which we've already mentioned? Well, games and, games and Netflix are causing the volume, but in terms of the, the applications that are being used differently, it does appear to be where there are problems. It is the video conferencing type apps that can get into difficulty. But, of course, the problem is it's not everyone on the app that experiences the problem. It may only be one person. It may be, it may be episodic and it may shift around. So there will be problems that occur with those that lead to a less than optimal experience for the users. 
But I think the other area that we do have to consider that the problems that we have are not always caused in the network operation or even the application operation phase. A lot of this it might be because we're not actually using our home capacity as optimally as we might. And that's particularly where the big log jam is coming potentially in households in the Wi-Fi network. Now, if the Wi-Fi network in the home gets overloaded because it's got all of these signals having to go from the modem out to the various things like the smart TV, the game box, and four or five computers, then that has to be considered. So one of the solutions that one can think about is that if the Wi-Fi network gets overloaded, there are solutions that are available, for example, plugging the smart TV into the modem using an Ethernet cable. You know, those cables we used to use back in the old days with dial-up connections. Yes, and a lot of our Wi-Fi networks are not really that fast. So I had a check around um, my, what I can receive from my home office, and I don't think that there was any Wi-Fi network at the speed running much greater than 30 megabits per second. And um, if you look at the bandwidth required for things like Chromecasting, where you take an Android device and send a picture or a movie uh, to a TV screen or uh, Apple TV type applications, you can also take an iPad and uh, send, uh, send it's turn, in fact, the television into a second screen. That's really a very, very heavy bandwidth uh, application running inside your house. Exactly. And so the other thing to remember, too, with the wireless, con- with Wi-Fi, the further away you are from the modem when it's doing the beaming, the weaker the signal is. And I think perhaps with home use, we've got people who are in there with congestion within the house. People have had to go and find different spaces to work in. And people may be actually doing their home office type activity in a different place, much further away from the modem. So the problem with the messages dropping off could be because it's just too far for the the modem to actually reliably transfer the data to and from. So one of the solutions for that is if you're using things like like video conferencing, you know, do it on a a device if it's on Wi-Fi closer to the modem. If you've got something that is immovable or isn't going to move, like, say, the game box or the smart TV, they are big volume suckers when it comes to using this capacity. So if you've got the Avid Gamer and the smart TV, plug them in with the Ethernet cables, and then that huge volume of traffic doesn't actually interfere with the Wi-Fi connection, and it will lead to a better experience for the rest of the users. So that's a great idea, and a thought that in fact occurred to me over the past few days is whether we might see the comeback of the desktop phone, because I noticed that uh, voice over IP, specifically I uh, plugged in a desktop type voice over IP phone into my router, had a very good and stable quality to it, and Of course, voice over IP traffic can be quite easily um, uh, prioritized by the Internet service providers. So it just occurred to me that we might, uh, in a few months' time, see a lot of people sitting at home with a voice over IP phone that looks like a normal office desk phone next to them, 
and that might even see uh, the comeback of geographical phone numbers in countries where um, these can be distinguished, so outside of North America, basically. Yes, it's ironic, isn't it? We've gone through these 20 years where we've thought that everything in this IP world, IT world has been driven by convergence, where we want to ensure that absolutely everything we do can run on a single device. And we've created these multi-purpose phones that aren't, aren't just phones, they're little computers that we carry around with us. But there are limits to that. And sometimes there's very good reasons for having specialist devices that actually manage the data traffic. And this is another argument, for example, where you know smart set-top boxes, which are in fact could potentially easily able to be plugged directly into the modem, and which then manage the access to a whole bunch of different um, online entertainment applications, may well actually end up being a better way of managing that capacity in the home. So it's um, actually ironic as well, as you mentioned earlier that we understand why uh, cable signal is able to provide uh, more capacity coming into the house, uh, that we then completely forget about that and go wireless in the house. And, um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, turn, turn what used to be a kind of very, uh, not very much shared um, uh, utility into something that's shared by a lot of people. So if we think about what uh, telcos, uh, regulators and app providers can do about congestion and quality service in these times, uh, do you have any ideas about that? I should add perhaps that um, I saw while we were talking on a news item coming past that the South African regulator has in fact now assigned emergency spectrum to several operators, um, so we do know that that has happened in this country. Well, I think I think it's about being smart and thinking about where the data needs to be, and that's where we have to think about what's the static data which can stay in one place and be hosted on the device versus what is the part of the data that absolutely has to move. Now, I think in a world of spectrum abundance or comparative spectrum abundance or capacity, we've assumed that we can move everything up and down the line. So I think we're probably going to go go to a system now, and this is also perhaps going to be a challenge within a, a 5G-type environment where we have to think a lot more about how much of the processing capacity we want to have locally to manage that versus how much we want to have centrally so that we can ensure that the data that moves is only the data that needs to move. And this is what we're seeing increasingly with things like Netflix. They're moving the repositories of the data closer and closer and closer to the end point. Once upon a time, all of the Netflix stuff came from Netflix at the centre. But now there's you know, 20, 30,000 locations around the world where Netflix data is cached as close as it can possibly be to the end consumers to try and minimise that traffic. So now we have to think about that also with the other applications. And we're seeing that increasingly with cell phone apps that are now doing much more of the processing on the phone or either with app um, programs on the phone or even within the operating systems. So I think we're going to see more and more of this these apps thinking more carefully about what needs to be located where. Yes, yeah, so I think actually uh, that veers close to a point uh, which I have been making in conversation that the whole development 
of the internet as a public tool or as an all-purpose technology is in fact quite related to the development of the end-user devices. So it's not that the concept of a universal computer network is that uh, novel. It's just that having devices that can do things on it that are useful or nice for people um, is has happened relatively recently, so over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, it was not the case 50 years ago. So 50 years ago, you had a complete Internet built out uh, over the planet. There wouldn't be much to do with it because uh, there's a very limited range of devices that you would have been able to connect to it. So, in fact, it's not just the network, but also the device that's at the end of it. Um, and uh, that was the demise of the phone because the ordinary phone was at some point the best thing that you could connect to a network. And uh, as time passed um, and devices developed and became more amusing and more useful, uh, we were just able to um, connect new things to a network. And this just happened to have required a different kind of network than the old telephone, telephone landline network which after all was quite an extensive network and was able to connect people from all over the world quite instantly. Yes, and I think the other thing we have to think about is it's not just one network. If we think of the average household now, um, the number of connections and smart and the number of connections and data connections that come into the average household now, it's not the old system where there was only one telephone line. In fact, what we've got is there may be one fixed line connection that comes in, but there's many mobile connections that come in. Of course, you might not just have your own mobile connections. You might also have access to, particularly in metropolitan areas, a Wi-Fi service that you can use in the household as well. So we're not looking at one single connection that drives everything or one pipe only. We've got multiple pipes and multiple choices. Where we've had convergence, it's been convergence to the single digital standard for the data. But when we branch out from that now, we've had this explosion of applications, which is now diverging because there's so many more different things we can do with it. So I think now we have to start thinking more about each of these, rather than just being a generic thing that uses digital data, it's an application-specific device that does a particular thing, and we have to think about optimising the way each application uses its data. Does it need to be transferred in real time, or can it be held on site? If you don't need real-time data, then maybe it's more efficient to just do a single upload at night rather than having real-time movement. And if it's small little bits of data, it might not matter. But if you don't need it in real time, why send it in real time, particularly at times that might be congested? Now, we've got quite used to um, electricity connections, which can be metered by time of day when the traffic, where, where the network is, has got spare capacity because they've generated the electricity and it's got to be used. So in order to keep the system operating, then there are times that it's more efficient to be able to generate more use. So say hot water at night being heated at reduced rates to encourage people to move and shift their traffic to different times. So I think there's all of these different options now that become possible because we now think more carefully about the data we're using, not just the fact that it's ethereal, ephemeral stuff that can work on some sort of into the ether. 
Yes, I think we've already seen new apps appearing. So something that's growing quite rapidly in popularity is called Marco Polo, like the Explorer. Um, So Marco Polo is just an app on which people leave uh, video messages for each other. So instead of the uh, sometimes ubiquitous WhatsApp voice note, which is recorded and then delivered to the uh, recipient's device, uh, one leaves a, a video message. And in these times of much reduced social uh, contact, um, that's proven to be quite popular. Yes, and I think one of the things that perhaps, you know, the social changes that come as we begin to work differently challenges some of the assumptions we've had. For a long time, we've thought that email has to be there and is an always-on application. But you now realize, we now realize over time that email as an always-on application isn't necessarily very helpful, that actually sometimes you can be more productive by turning email off. And, you know, we're, we're seeing these new applications like Teams coming and exploding out as we work remotely. And we're now seeing that we're connected all the time through Teams. But again, we have to think now not just about what the way the application is is able to transmit its work, but also how we as humans work with the applications, because that can change the way that we use the capacity we have available. And I think this is a fascinating time with people working differently because we're all learning so much about how the networks work, but also how we work with the applications. Certainly, and there's also uh, a lot of incentive and uh, cost factors involved. So, you know, if somebody can disturb you uh, instantly by sending a Teams app, uh, I mean a Teams message, it's not the same as you sitting in an office in the same building and the person actually having to get up, walk over to your desk, possibly find you not there and then find the time wasted and then walk back. So uh, the cost of a quick uh, drop in at the office has changed. And yeah. I do think I do agree that we'll have to get used to that. Um, so, Bronwyn, um, I think in closing, do you have two ideas for how end users might be able to make their life better while working, playing, schooling, learning and doing everything from home at the moment? Well, the two, the two big takeouts for that what users can do is if you are working remotely from your device and you seem to be having things dropping off, check. Maybe you could get a Wi-Fi extender to make your Wi-Fi network beam wider so you can then go to the end of the garden to work if you really do need to get away from the people in the house. And the other one is think about where you position, you know, basically position the modem and the, the hungry devices and get them off Wi-Fi wherever possible because Wi-Fi is probably the single biggest household constraint. Yes, and because Wi-Fi uh, shares unlicensed spectrum, uh, that will also have an impact on your neighbours. I understand. So, uh, yes, if you're all of us keep going. So, so if all of us reduce our Wi-Fi usage, uh, it will make it better not just for, not just in your house, but also for your neighbours. So, uh, if you are community-minded, that's another reason to do it. Absolutely, especially if you're in a more densely populated area. Absolutely correct. 
so Bronwyn, uh, it's been a good conversation, I think. Um, I'm Pietro Spolchiter, and uh, my colleague Bronwyn Howell's been on the line from New Zealand. I'm in South Africa. We've been using Skype to record this, which I hope has worked quite well. And this was the first podcast in Call and Chain, brought to you by the Institute for Technology and Network Economics. Um, have a great day, everyone.